New REI nurses, take your career to the next level with NROCS, the Nurses in REI Communication, Knowledge and Skills online certificate program from ASRM. NROCS gives you practical applications you can use immediately and the opportunity to interact with other REI nurses and content experts. Increase your understanding of REI, make new professional connections, and gain confidence in your nursing role. To learn more about NROCS, visit asrm.org slash nrcks. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes. Today on the show, we are talking about fertility preservation with Dr. Gwendolyn Quinn. Dr. Quinn is Livia Wan, MD, Endowed Chair and Professor of OBGYN, Vice Chair of Research, Professor of Population Health, Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Quinn, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's nice to be here. So this is your first time, and as my tradition with my first-time guests, I was wondering if you could just uh, tell the audience a little bit about how you became interested in reproductive medicine. So I started off being more interested in issues about prenatal care for underserved populations, and then as I got more involved in cancer research, that broadened my interest about reproductive health in terms of preserving fertility. So... We're here, of course, to talk about fertility preservation. We appreciate you being able to take time to do this. Currently, what are some of the most common prognoses that would require presenting fertility uh, preservation as as an option for a patient? Well, until very recently, people would preserve fertility for medical reasons, primarily cancer, but it could be something like rheumatoid arthritis or lupus uh, or any condition where people were going to receive gonadotoxic treatment. But more recently, people who are going through gender-affirming hormones or surgeries might also preserve fertility because some of those hormones and surgeries could also be toxic to the reproductive system. And I think even more recent than that, we have now this concept of social or elective fertility preservation. People who are freezing, not for a medical reason, but because they haven't found a partner, they need to pursue a career, and they want to preserve their gametes at their most optimal time to use at a later date. So this is too what, what sort of ties into the the, the most recent a lot of arguments in the in the as you said social aspect of it of, of you know getting companies to approve I guess with insurance reasons for people to do egg freezing and whatnot is that correct um yes I mean so definitely for the, in the people who actually have a cancer mm-hmm. diagnosis ah. I think that um state by state we're successful mm-hmm. in Uh, changing some of that legislation to make sure that it's covered by insurance. But there certainly are some gray areas. There are some states that have not adopted it yet. There are people who are pre-vivors. So this is a person who is an unaffected carrier of a hereditary cancer syndrome. So for example, they may have BRCA1 or 2. They don't have any symptoms. They know their genetic um, uh, status. And they might be opting to do some prophylactic surgeries to reduce their risk in the future. And so they might also want to use fertility preservation, 
but they don't qualify because they don't technically have this medical condition. How common is it for people to do fertility preservation knowing they may not survive? Yeah, so there's, I think, two schools of thought. So what I also didn't mention, um, you know, people who are, people are also doing fertility preservation for not necessarily any of those reasons we just discussed, but because it's part of their infertility journey. So you may have um, a couple and they are going to, you know, bank embryos and they're going to do a, a frozen transfer or they might do a fresh transfer and freeze some others. So technically, they've also done fertility preservation. They have gametes, you know, on ice to use, you know, at a, at a later date. So many people outside of a cancer diagnosis, we really don't know when our end of life will be. Certainly cancer patients worry about it a lot more frequently and have more concern than the average person who's frozen for social reasons or frozen because of uh, infertility. But I think more and more clinics are moving towards creating consent forms that have people think about these options. I think the ethical dilemma for some clinicians is providing this information to patients with cancer, for example, with a late stage disease or a poor prognosis. So I've had clinicians say, you know, basically this person has a less than 10% chance of survival. It feels like a sense of false hope to say to them, hey, do you want to bank your eggs or sperm? But I would argue that that really takes away patient autonomy because the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, American Society of Clinical Oncology, all say that all patients should be presented with this option and provided referrals if they choose. And so while it might not be something that you or I would do, we take away the autonomy of the patient to let them know that that is an option. And patients sometimes, regardless of having a poor prognosis, but just in general, you know, want this information and they want to be the one to make the decision. So many patients, you know, who would qualify, who have you know, a good prognosis, still choose not to do it, but then that's their choice. It's not a choice that the medical community has made for them by withholding information. So even if a person does make this choice, is access to this sort of treatment or care easy on the whole, or is it difficult? I would say that assisted reproductive technology is not easy for anyone, regardless of their circumstances. And even if it's covered by insurance, you know, not everything is covered. You may still have to take time off work or, you know, time to rest afterwards. And those might not be covered benefits. But I think more people engage in fertility preservation with the idea of their gametes being used posthumously than any of us would be aware of because society frowns upon it. So people don't go public about it. Um, there was a very... Uh, well-described case a number of years ago of a cadet at West Point who died in a car accident, whose parents were successfully able to get a court order to posthumously retrieve his sperm. And I think they were able to do that by showing that not only was he an organ donor, but he had, you know, written in a diary, he chose to be a parent one day. So that was, they were able to procure that sperm. But the challenge is then the next step with those firms. So finding a clinic that is willing to engage in the process with you to have a donor egg, to have a surrogate, 
to use that sperm to create a grandchild, there's no indication that that person wanted a child for their parents to raise. So I think at every step of the juncture, there's potential roadblocks that become you know, more enhanced depending on the further you are away from the relationship to the deceased. So a married couple, whether that's a straight couple or a gay couple who have filled out the forms with the clinic that say in the event of my death, my partner can have these gametes, whatever, you know, whatever shape they are to create a child and I will take their name and all those types of things. That's probably the easiest. But there are people who want to gift their gametes to a sister or a brother. And that can be challenging, especially if that person lives out of state, because there's actually state laws about the transfer under the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act. And I think then, you know, if you are a a parent of the deceased, you know, there's implications and concerns about creating grandchildren and that type of thing. So there's a lot of ethics to it, um, a lot of decisions to be had. But again, I think it is a patient's choice. And I think it's no different than I'm thinking of that book, When Breath Becomes Air. So, you know, they were aware that there was a poor prognosis for the male partner, but they decided to have a child anyway. And the, you know, author of the book was able to spend some time with that child before he died. And now this person's right. So it's really no different than rushing to do it while the person's alive, then maybe even better than the option of doing it when cooler heads prevail, you know, after the grief period, after this, and, you know, people have the time to decide, I may have thought I wanted this with my partner when they were alive, but now that they're no longer here, this isn't necessarily what I want. Is there any advice based on research or current things about, as we're talking about this sort of the person or a couple has to sort of consider the disposition, right, of, of the stored sperm or the oocyte or the embryos, you know, is there anything clinicians, is there like a checklist or is, is there something, you know, that, that they say, hey, maybe we need, to, I know you're, you also said it's ultimately up to the patient, but what should, you know, clinicians be able to provide, you know, up front? Well, fortunately, I think these decisions don't occur at the at the cancer center. You know, they're not really for the oncologist. They occur at the at the fertility clinic. And I think many fertility clinics have had a lot of experience of one-off cases that help them to constantly revise their consent form. So we've all seen in the news, you know, what at one point was a happily partnered couple, and then they separate, and then they fight over the disposition of the embryos. And for the most part, courts in the United States have ruled that a person's right not to be a parent trumps the right to be a parent. Now, in the UK, they actually recently ruled the opposite of that, but most cases in the United States are determined by that. So it's, I'm sure, very challenging in these counseling situations in the clinics because it's kind of like telling, you know, a couple when they're recently engaged and excited to plan the plan the wedding and say, hey, you need a prenuptial agreement. Like, oh no, that will never happen to us. You know, so you're asking people to think about a, a negative bad scenario, you know, and make a make a plan about it. But fortunately, I think most clinics do that. 
to my knowledge, many clinics already say that if the patient is a minor and the patient dies, then those gametes are automatically destroyed. They can't be gifted to anybody. Now that may vary from clinic to clinic. There's no federal laws about that. So this is a state-to-state decision too, basically, right? As, 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 as this area is growing, right, more and more, and just as you said at the, at the top of our interview about people making that decision now, right, that, that more people probably, can we surmise age maybe 25 to 40, are, are taking this option if, they, if it's available to them more often. But this, again, becomes complicated because there are all kinds of different complicated, you know, rules for each state. Yes. Yes. And I mean, sadly, I will say we don't know what the future holds uh, as a result of the Dobbs decision and the overturn of Roe. There may be some states that no longer allow the crowd preservation of embryos. You know, so I don't know what will, ha- you know, I don't know if that's a real thing. It's, it's on the horizon for, for people to think about. We do encourage females to bank eggs and embryos if they're able to with a cancer diagnosis, even without a cancer diagnosis, I mean, if if they're partnered, because that kind of avoids that whole embryo disposition in case the the partnership ends, you know, so at least you have eggs if you can't use your embryos and your eggs you own. But yeah, um, I mean, not only is it, it's a clinic by clinic decision that may be guided by the state that they're operating in, and may also be guided by federal laws that govern the moving of tissues from one state to, you know, to another. Here in New York, many people have banked in New York, gone off, you know, finished their college, finished their treatment, gone off to live in other places and find it's much easier to just return to New York to have to use their gametes than to try to transfer them, you know, to a state. It's expensive and there's a lot of paperwork involved. But I would say most clinics, particularly academic clinics, have thought through a lot of these issues and give the patients the opportunity for kind of like this checkbox. Like in the event of my death, my gametes may go to my partner, let's just say. But maybe, you know, you're willing to do that. But have you thought through what if your partner has another partner? Did you only want to have them if they never, you know, never partnered again. So there's a lot of psychology, you know, that goes into it. A lot of fertility clinics have counselors, you know, who can help talk through the decision process. But then I also would add that people with a cancer diagnosis often don't have a lot of time. They're lucky if they can get in the the time that they need to do egg retrieval. Sperm takes a, a little bit less time. And so they're having to make decisions in a relatively limited short period of time under the pressure of this, you know, life-threatening diagnosis. I mean, it's interesting because I, I'm curious if if a person has, whether it's male or female, and has this, you know, a cancer diagnosis or some sort of terminal illness diagnosis. I, I, I'm wondering if it if it ever comes into play that you know thoughts about maybe the genetics. Uh, of things, you know, that they may be worried that if they do preserve, you know, will cancer still be inevitable? Is there is there anything that, that clinicians can can do to to ease that? Yeah, that's a really interesting point because those of us who work with the younger population, the adolescents and young adults, AYA with cancer, 
only 10% for the most part of cancers in that population are hereditary, but we say 100% of patients worry about it. And they often worry about it in a, in a way that we call them silent sufferers. Like they, like they never say, we say, oh, you know, you should consider fertility preservation. They'll say, no, I'm not interested. They won't express that that's their concern. So I think it's uh, helpful when clinicians preemptively say there is no reason to believe that this cancer is hereditary or this cancer is hereditary. We're going to send you for genetic counseling. And also, as you know, you know, we have the option for pre-implantation genetic testing. So it's possible for this person to create embryos that can be examined to see if they contain that same hereditary polymorphism that's, you know, causing this person's cancer. We're almost out of time, but I want to make sure I ask you this before we go. Are there any uh, materials, references uh, that you can recommend to either clinicians or, or patients or both currently that might help in talks and transitions and whatnot? Our group has published a couple of papers. We've mostly done some work in kind of surveying clinics in the United States as well as clinics outside the United States for what their policies are. And what was surprising is that very few clinics have an actual policy. So they kind of deal with these things on a case-by-case -case basis, whether or not they'll do posthumous retrieval of sperm, for example, whether or not they'll allow, you know, a partner to uh, take possession of the gametes without a contract. So it makes sense because they're not dealing with this, you know, on a regular basis. I'm not aware of any patient-facing materials, but there's an interesting documentary that was made. Now I'm going to forget the name of it. I, I might have to send it to you afterwards. I think it's called Mother's Day. Okay. And it's a documentary filmmaker herself who experienced stage four diagnosis and hired a surrogate and discussed with her partner at the time, you know, we're going to have this baby, but I might not be around to help you raise it. You know, how do you feel about that? So it, it documents their journey. It was on Netflix. And I think it gives, you know, one perspective. And I think that there are some online discussion groups that may be more helpful, you know, for patients. And I would say one recommendation I have for clinics is to, you know, if if someone signed a consent, maybe review those consents with people every year. So their thoughts change, more information changes, their relationship status changes. It's just a good idea to do a refresh. Well, it's been a pleasure, and today my guest on the show has been Dr. Gwendolyn Quinn. Uh, Dr. Quinn is Livia Wan, MD, Endowed Chair and Professor, OBGYN, Vice Chair of Research, Professor, Population Health, Division of Medical Ethics at NYU School of Medicine. Dr. Quinn, thank you so much for being able to come on the show to, to talk about fertility preservation. Thank you. And you can rate, subscribe, and leave feedback on the show through Apple Podcasts, Google, or wherever you get your podcasting uh, needs. Uh, until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today Series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.